Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us every week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now, but also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And this week's episode is all about trade and globalisation amid calls for the way the world does business to be modernised. Keith, thanks for joining me today. First off, I want to start with the basics. How are countries trading with each other and what's the body that oversees it? Yeah, so what we're looking at here is the way in which trade is conducted between countries. So trade, I think, is of great benefit to all the countries in the world. That's the controversial statement. There are people who would say we shouldn't trade, we should just specialise in what we can do at home and we really don't need to have foreign drinks like Coca-Cola we can make our own, which is a policy that the Indians, for example, had following their independence until about 20-odd years ago. They just tried to be completely nationalistic and self-reliant. I think the problem in Australia is that people will see what's available overseas because of internet, social media, etc., and they will want to import it. And so as soon as you start to import something, you've got to export something else to pay for your import. So we're locked into the international trading system towards the end of World War II, the Western countries, particularly the United Kingdom and the United States, went over why World War II had come into being. And they decided that one of the major factors was the unrest within the global economy. There had been the big depression of the 1930s, a lot of unemployment in countries like Germany, etc. So they decided that as they were winning World War II, that whatever new organisation would be created, which of course we now know as the United Nations, would also have to pay attention to economic issues. It's not enough just to have diplomats meeting together to try to prevent wars from occurring. If you look at economic and social issues, you're dealing with the causes of those wars. Mm -hmm. So they worked together and they were particularly concerned about increasing the prospects of trade. And the phrase that people use is free trade. Now, the trade is free not in the sense that you don't pay any money for it, but it's free in the sense that you can move goods across borders rather than just being so self-reliant that you didn't get involved. So, for example, the Soviet Union after World War II didn't get involved in international trade. They did a bit of trading within their own zone of influence, which is Eastern Europe, but they didn't try to do much international trade. So that's obviously one model that you can follow. But the problem for the Soviet leadership is that people in the Soviet Union could see how well people could live in, say, West Germany, and so they wanted to have what the West Germans would have. So whenever I travelled in Eastern Europe during World War Two, uh, after World War Two, during the Cold War, I always took pairs of jeans and coffee. <laughs> currency, eh? <laughs> currency, they're the new currency. Yeah. And that obviously contributed ultimately to the collapse of the Soviet Union, that people could see what was available overseas and what they were not going to get when they are at home under communism. So free trade means that you can move your goods across national boundaries. And a lot of economists use the phrase globalisation. Mm-hmm. I actually use the phrase in a slightly different context because for me, globalisation is also international law and the work of non-governmental organisations, a whole series of other things. But economists 
look at things from an economic point of view. So their definition of globalisation is obviously all relating to the movement of goods and services across national boundaries. And so the first really big attempt after World War II was to create some sort of international trading system, which mainly affected just the Western world. And that was the first, if you like, iteration of globalisation in the post-World War II world. That then gradually expanded, but they had all sorts of problems because you had different countries of different sizes, different positions on the path to economic growth. So the trading system was not as efficient as it could be. That was one problem, that just the sheer mechanics of getting globalisation to work was a problem. Then you ended up with other people who were saying trade creates environmental problems and we shouldn't be encouraging the import or export of things. And this time we also invented food miles Mm -hmm. where you'd calculate how much distance your food had to travel before it reached your plate. (laughs) Um, Same with flowers. Mm. You have flowers that are grown in East Africa that are sold in London. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. The air miles for a, a bunch of roses or whatever. So that was a second argument against globalisation. And then, of course, during the COVID crisis, we were paying a price for globalisation because of the disruption of supply chains. Mm. And people are saying, well, look, we've got to bring more stuff back on shore. If you're having it made overseas in China, then you end up with goods being produced more cheaply, but you may not have security of supply. I remember the empty shelves at Kmart <laughs> right across Australia because all the product came from China. Yeah, yeah. There was nothing there. Nothing there. So there's been this movement against globalisation. The article that we're looking at today is by Arthur Appleton, who's at Johns Hopkins University in the United States, and he's talking about re-globalisation. So we've gone from globalisation to deglobalization, particularly during the COVID crisis, and now we're talking about re-globalisation. But re-globalisation has got to be done differently. And his argument is that we've got to get back to having trade across national boundaries, but we've just got to do things differently. So in this article, what he's looking at is how can we encourage international trade, but do it in a better way. He talks about the modernisation of the trade. One of the basic issues, by the way, is not only are we now trading goods, we're also trading services, such as the internet and legal stuff as well. What he's looking at is that we've got to find just a new way of trying to sort out all these things. And so the article puts forward, I think, a number of very interesting ideas, very challenging. We are still locked, as Australia is still locked back in an earlier era. Most of our money comes really from the sale of coal and metals and food. But we are developing a good education sector by bringing students in from overseas to study at Australian universities. What's called the export of education Mm -hmm. is our third largest industry and number one in the case of Victoria. We are doing quite well, but obviously the challenge is for us to go even further. Tell me about the WTO and what it is and how it came to be. So the World Trade Organization was set up as a way that's made up of UN members. It's the negotiating body to try to encourage free trade. The problem is that it's stalemated. Mm. Again, is it because of problems of globalization? Even issues like uh, how do you define what is a developing country? 
China does very well because we all think of China as a developed country, et cetera, but China claims to be still just a developing country. And there are some rules around that, aren't there? Like why China's doing that? Well, because they get trade preferences yeah. as a developing country. So they're playing both sides of the street. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at the wealth of China, you'd say, oh, that's a developed country. Yeah. But the Chinese will say, no, no, we're still trying to develop. And they can point to the pockets of poverty, particularly in the western part of China, mm. and say, look, we're still developing. Yep. Okay, they're all very wealthy in Beijing, Shanghai. A lot of ordinary people are just not making that much money. And because it's the idea, right, that with the WTO from reading this article, the countries themselves decide that for themselves, which seems bizarre to me. How is it set up that way? Well, that's the nature of international cooperation. Yeah, sure. You know, there's a high degree of latitude still given to countries to make their own decisions because if they are not given that latitude, then they won't be involved at all. Mr Appleton in the article talks about how outdated the current model is for global trade. What's not working right now? Pretty well everything, I think, although there is a lot of international trade going on, but, you know, you have the whole problem, well, as we've just touched on, about how do you classify countries? Who is a developing country? Who is a developed country? So you've got all those issues. For example, the list of developing countries includes Singapore, Kuwait, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, they're all very wealthy, Mm. but they say, oh, no, we're just humble developing countries. Mm. (laughs) So we need to have special privileges. So that's one problem. Another problem is dealing with the issue of externalities. So an externality is what occurs alongside your economic activity. For example, a factory, while it's manufacturing things, produces a lot of pollution. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to find a way this is the jargon for you, of internalising externalities. Oh, great. In other (laughs) words, make the polluter pay. Sure. So, for example, one of the standard examples is a a factory pulling water in from a river, clean water, and then discharging it downstream as polluted water. Mm. So the argument is, well, you've got to make sure that they have to discharge the water upstream of the factory. That gives them an incentive to be clearer about and cleaner as to what's actually in the water being discharged because they're going to be taking it in for their factory. So whatever they're also producing needs to be cleaned up. So that's internalising the diseconomies and the externalities. So we've got to find a way that we cover things like slavery-like practices, which we're doing under domestic legislation in this country. Still got a long way to go, but at least we're going in the right direction. So you've got things like working conditions for people and environmental conditions. They need to be built into all of these things. So this takes you beyond just the issue of making a car in one country and selling it in another. You've also got to know who was involved in making that automobile and what damage was done to the environment. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda, and today we're discussing the world's trading protocol and why it might be time for an upgrade. Keith, who would be responsible for modernising the current system? Oh, we're back to the trading organisation, World Trade Organisation, WTO. Mm. They would need to take that on, and it would obviously require a, a change of mindset amongst its members to say, yes, we will want to expand the work that we've got. And here you're up against what in the Western world is called new right economic rationalism, okay. <laughs> which is, you know, all about making as much money as you can. You don't worry about the consequences. 
So remember, you've got this alternative point of view, which is that you build the consequences into the manufacturing or the service provision so as to force you to make sure you don't exploit labour, don't ruin the environment. Whereas if you're a new right economic rationalist, you'd say, well, you're there to make as much money as you can. You don't worry about these consequences. That's not your concern. Let others worry about that. So you've got to find a way, therefore, of changing the mentality of some of the countries. But if you think about from a Chinese point of view, China's done brilliantly under the world trade system. The Americans, under particularly Bill Clinton, encouraged China to join the World Trade Organization, the reasoning being that if the Chinese were to join, it would force up labor standards because they would then want to cooperate with the rest of the industrialized world. In fact, what's happened is that the Chinese have joined, have done very well, but haven't really changed too many of their other policies. <laughs> it didn't you know, work. The great hope was that once the country got richer, so its democracy would flourish because mm. that's one of the general laws, of, if you like, of political science, that as a, a country gets richer, so it ceases to be authoritarian mm-hmm. and moves to becoming a democracy. Well, China's proved that wrong. <laughs> Great, yeah. <laughs> so if the WTO is supposed to be kind of responsible for this, is anyone, aside from Michael Clare in this article, is anyone screaming for it? Does anyone want the change? Oh, there are a number of, of free trade organisations that want to improve this. In fact, I belong to one here in Sydney, which is campaigning for really fair trade. So, yes, there are organisations. We're non-governmental organisations. The business sector, of course, just want to have things done cheaply. Mm. Now, they would argue that they are developing more of a social conscience, triple-line approach. You've got ESG, sustainable governance, etc. They would say there is a culture change underway, and it may well be that is the case, but we've still got an awfully long way to go. So we've got to build in to what are basically economic agreements, considerations relating to the environment, and how you treat your workers, human rights, and all that sort of thing. How long would that take to achieve if someone was like, okay, (laughs) I'm at the WTO, I'm going to make this happen. What's the process for getting that through? Well, the countries concerned have to agree. Mm. You can't impose it on them. Mm -hmm. This is the weakness of international law. Mm. Once they all agree, then the arrangement works out because there is this element of people actually agreeing to something rather than being imposed on them. You know, it's a bit of a difference between say, banning smoking, people will still find a way to smoke because this is a rule that's been imposed on them. However, you have a situation where countries negotiate their own rules. There's a greater chance that they will see it in their own interest to obey the rules. My favourite example is a campaign that I was involved in with Amnesty International. This is half a century ago. Mm. We used to send food parcels and other items to political prisoners held in Soviet jails. Okay. The goods never arrived. They were confiscated and the the prison guards stole the parcels. So we then said, okay, well, we will register them. So the parcels were sent, still didn't arrive, but we then complained to the British Post Office that these goods had not arrived. So the British Post Office refunded the money to us. The British Post Office then got onto the Soviet Post Office and said, these goods have not arrived. You've got to reimburse us in London. Yeah. And the Soviet post office agreed. Right. The reason being is that they didn't want to have any disruption 
to Soviet mail going overseas. Sure. And then after a while, somebody in the KGB realised that the Soviet post office was <laughs> financing Amnesty International in London. <laughs> and so they allowed the food parcels to go through to the prisoners. Wow. Because it was in the Soviet interest to yeah. keep the postal service operating overseas. And it seems like we have that conversation often on this program is talking about well, we know what the good thing is, but the trick is to get people along there for the ride with you to the good place. And I guess then that leads me to my next question, which is what happens if nothing changes, if everything stays the same? Well, nothing does stay the same. That that is a law of international politics that you've always got changes emerging. Now, we need to have more, in my view, remember this is very controversial, I'm a great supporter of free trade, but it has to be free trade in good conditions, one of them being a society where there are free trade unions. In China, for example, it's very difficult to be able to operate. I remember uh, being on one of my trips to Poland, again, this is during the Cold War, and we've taken around a factory run by Fiat, which is an Italian car producer. And I spoke to the head of the factory saying, you know, the Cold War is underway. Italy is not friendly with these Eastern European countries. Why are you getting your cars made in Poland. Mm. And his reply was, there are no communists in the trade unions. (laughs) (laughs) So we're dealing with a situation, therefore, that I think that we have got to make sure that the fair trade is really fair trade and we build in environmental, labour, human rights standards into the trade that we do. We can't go back to the old system, which was devised after World War II. We've moved on from there. I'm not a supporter of deglobalization and trying to bring everything back on shore. I think that something can be achieved by bringing it back on shore, and I'd like to see more manufacturing done in Australia. But ultimately, we're going to have to be trading with the rest of the world, and I think we just need to improve the terms and conditions of our doing that trade and, at the same time, make sure that the other countries with which we trade are also improving their own conditions when it comes to environment and human rights, etc., That always seems to be the challenge. So uh, maybe we'll get you to the WTO and you can argue it direct with them. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic.